Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. Hello, and welcome to the February episode of the Storied Recipe podcast. If you missed the explanation of why I am putting out um, only monthly episodes for this year, for 2023, you can read that. Uh, the link to the blog post is there in the show notes. But I am here today with an episode that is worthy of uh, just a monthly release and is well worth waiting for. My guest today is Kavari Panapa who wrote The Vanishing Kadavas, a deep cultural study of her own people group who have been devoted for centuries above all else to the rolling hills and the deep, dense forests of their land, Karagu. The origins of this remote and warlike people are unknown, and their history is purely oral. They have no written language. But against those odds, Kavari embarked on the immense task of not only recording, but also seeking to understand and interpret for the modern world her people's culture and customs. The Kadavas do remain in existence today, and they in fact keep many of their customs intact. And they don't do this by isolating themselves, but actually rather by inviting and encouraging neighbors and descendants who live in the modern world to return to their land to celebrate and to learn. In addition to these stories from her people and a discussion of her uh, laborious research and writing process, today Kavari shared a delicious mushroom curry recipe with us. This dish is emblematic of all that is vanishing or is in danger of vanishing, including the customs of the Kadavas, monsoon season, and the fields covered with mushrooms and moss as far as the eye could see. So I'm welcoming Kavari and thanking you for being here to listen today. Where are you right now? Where are we having this conversation from? Um, I live in Bangalore, Bangalore in India, in southern India. Yes. Uh, um, I live actually between Kodagu and Bangalore. And right now I'm in Bangalore and I'm sitting in my uh, my study I'm speaking to you. Oh, and it's late evening there. The sun must have set. It is. It's it's dark and it's, um, but it's very pleasant. We we still have a um, very pleasant weather in Bangalore. Oh, good. I, I just want to thank you very much for having um, invited me to be on this uh, at uh, the storied recipe. I love the concept. Oh. I think there is just so much more to. Uh, food and eating. There's so actually there's an entire world around it. Yes, and uh, I, I love your approach to uh, a recipe and a dish. I want to thank you for coming on. I honestly can't remember um, how I came across you on Instagram. I know it was on there. Probably somebody shared something, and mm -hmm. I was um, I was fascinated by it, but. We're mostly going to talk about your book and about uh, food today and how the two interrelate. But one of the things that struck me the most, well, I think it was the thing that struck me initially when I started following your account, mm -hmm. is that you um, you you dress in the most elegant and beautiful saris 
Um, and you always include information about the maker, about the type mm -hmm. of fabric that was used. And mm -hmm. I would love to just start actually by talking about that. Um, are saris very meaningful to you? And do you have a large collection? Do people give these to you? Um, why why are these important to you? And, and who do you support when you wear them? Well, um, saris are very important to me. In mm. fact, um, I have been in love with handlooms since my early teens. Mm. Um, they have a fantastic tradition of handmade textiles in India. Mm. Um, and in fact, this once dominated world trade. Uh, it's fascinating if you get into the history of textiles. Uh, but my own personal sari collection is something that um, it, it's grown over a lifetime. Mm. I have now an outrageous number of things. <laughs> <laughs> I wondered if they were all yours. They're all yours. <laughs> it's just that I I love the feel and the, mm. the the drape and you know the entire emotion of the unstitched garment. Mm. I think it's perfect for our lives, for our climate. And um I've spent I've spent a long time collecting Isaris from different parts of the country because each of them is distinct distinct. Mm. And each of them has a story to tell um, about the art or the heritage and the customs of a particular region. I mean, literally, it's a it's a narrative that mm. you can read. As, as you rightly pointed out, I share information about, um, you know, the, the weave or the material or the motifs or the colors, um, because I've tried to educate myself by traveling to the looms and to mm. different weaving clusters, as they're called, uh, to uh, to get to know the human beings behind these works of art. Mm. And uh, <clears throat> I was very struck at how um, um, seemingly difficult and yet satisfying their lives were. Mm. And I say were because they're facing a crisis now. And um, they have these tremendous... Uh, inherited skills which have taken centuries to develop mm -hmm. and you can see this accumulated um, knowledge and expertise and what it requires to create these textiles we we kind of take for granted um, <clears throat> for instance you need enormous mathematical skills in addition mm. to uh, you know your technical and artistic skills so I actually was drawn into writing about some parts of my collection on yes. Instagram because um, handlooms are going through an acute crisis right now mm. uh, due to many reasons. I mean, there are too many to um, speak about here. But mm. what it boils down to is that the next generation of weavers, um, they don't want to weave mm. because feel they don't get the the, the money and the uh, compensation and the mm. respect that they deserve. So this is just my way of sharing uh, the beauty of this textile tradition mm -hmm. and trying to give uh, something like a voice to the people who weave those, uh, something that I love mm -hmm. and also um, trying to communicate something of the enormous uh, cultural and historic loss we'll face if uh, mm. we give up their heritage. Mm. That's the 
story story. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, and it sounds like um it sounds like you feel that not only the makers but actually the wearers are also losing something by moving maybe to more modern clothing because it sounds like you think it's the most the most comfortable, elegant, beautiful like you feel so at home in a sari. It sounds like in a way that you can't necessarily in more modern fashion. Is that true? Um yes, and I I feel um <clears throat> I think the break has been quite abrupt because mm. um, I, um, until a few years ago, I wore a sari almost every day. And mm. there was one in, uh, we have saris for summer, saris for winter, saris for special occasions, saris for every day. Um, and I do see the point of view of the younger generation because it's not easy to maintain a sari because it's yards and yards of material that you need to wash and uh, iron and uh, you know you have to have it's not like a t-shirt and a pair of jeans you can just pull on and mm-hmm. you're out there <clears throat> but there's there are very few activities that I have not been able to do or I have been excluded from while mm-hmm. wearing a sari um, so I guess for the younger generation, I understand it's it's convenience because their lives are far more, um, I think, far more hectic than um, lives mm-hmm. were <clears throat> even a couple of years back. Mm. Um, but I wish there was some way to balance this out. I mm-hmm. do wish. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what the solution is, mm. uh, but this is this is just one way of you know. Um, I, I love the interests that I've met with. It's yes. Really interesting. Yes, because I have good um, conversations with people around um, textiles and saris. Mm-hmm. I didn't expect that much of interest. <laughs> there. Well, they are they are absolutely stunning, and like you said, um, there's so many um, flavors of them. You know, um, and you wrote something the other day about how you were watching a sunset and you turned, I think you were with the designer of a sari yes. and you said yes. this, this, this sunset is like your um, sari. And I'm not sure that's something that you can get from modern fashion. You know, I'm wearing a dress right now. I like to wear dresses. You have pretty dresses, but I don't know that I've ever, um, there's a richness, I think to the, um, to the fabric of the mm-hmm. sari, and there's an elegance to the drape that is certainly elevated, I think, beyond really anything in modern fashion. Well, it's it's very heartening to hear you say that, Becky, because that means you've understood the sari <laughs> beautifully, because uh, these are some of the things that we try and uh, share and try and explain to, to younger people. And... Um, um, I think that really is the essence of the sari because it mm. is timeless. Mm. It's kind of beyond fashion. Mm. And uh, it's, I think perhaps that's why I appreciate it so much. Mm. Mm. Yes. And it's intensely feminine because you can, uh, it makes you feel, it certainly makes me feel uh, the way no other dress makes me feel. A sari mm. is so special. <clears throat> mm. Well, I feel like I could, 
talk through this whole episode about stories. I actually have quite a few more questions, but I'm going to quash them for the moment. Maybe listeners will reach out with more sorry questions and we can follow up because <laughs> um, I have more, but I do, um, I do want to, I do want to move on as difficult as it is because there's so much to cover about, um, about your life's work, which really is about preserving. It's about, first of all, seeing and mm-hmm. acknowledging, um, why traditions are important and then also about, um, preserving them, um, which, which which is interesting because um, sometimes we can preserve things just for the sake of preservation. But I think for you, it sounds like a lot of what you do is talking about why why yes. it's important to preserve. And I really want to dive dive deep into that. But um, first, let's introduce the traditions and the people group um, that you're that you're trying to preserve. So your book is called The Vanishing Kadavas. Is that how I say it? Kadavas, Kadavas. Yes, that's right. That's okay. Right. The Vanishing Cadavas, which is a intriguing title. I mean, really well named. Um, so I guess my first question is just who are the Cadavas? Um, well, um, <clears throat> the Cadavas themselves are a bit of an enigma because um, there's very little known about our early past. Mm. Um, we are a people who uh, we, are, uh, we believe that we have migrated to Kodugu. Uh, Kodugu is a very ancient region in the Western Ghats of Southern India. It's a hilly region. Mm. And um, it was, it's a very rough landscape, uh, densely forested. Uh, with it, the climate was very harsh. And it was a place that most other people considered uninhabitable. Mm. For the Kodawas, this was home, and they loved it with a passion. Mm. But all our folk songs, and we have a lot of them, uh, they contain long passages in praise of the beauty and the generosity of the land. Mm. Uh, and there's this constant sense of gratitude and pride, uh, which they felt uh, in belonging to this patch of wilderness, I can't mm. describe it any mm. other way. So mm. uh, all our history and our traditions, our social norms and customs, uh, our entire cultural heritage was passed down orally. Wow. So you find that there are large gaps in our history and um, very little is known about our past previous to about uh, the mid-17th century. Okay. So so what you have after that is a lot of anthropologists and historians and colonial administrators mm. who have speculated that uh, perhaps these people have migrated uh, several millennia ago, mm. possibly, <clears throat> excuse me, from the Eastern Mediterranean or West Asia, Mm -hmm. Uh, But none of these theories have sufficient uh, data to support them. Mm. And I have read extensively and, you know, followed up many theories myself. But I think I just have to leave it there saying that we really don't know where we Mm. came from. Mm -hmm. But, um, But what we were and are is very distinct from our neighbors. Mm. Um, in terms of our language, our ways of worship, um, our dress, cuisine, mm. and um, customs, laws. 
um, <clears throat> and the Korvas were traditionally a very warlike people. We were mm. divided into clans which were constantly warring with each other, mm-hmm. or they would be fighting battles to protect this little patch of wilderness. Mm. Uh, you know, Korugu, their land was very, very precious to them. Mm. So um, as a people, um, they were very hardy outdoor people who loved sporting activities of mm. <laughs> every description. And mm. uh, in fact, even today, you'll find that uh, although we've come a long way from, you know, fighting wars and so on, we uh, a lot of our uh, social and cultural activities end in uh, sporting competitions or shooting competitions, mm. basically something to show off your physical fitness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Your feats um, of strength, just, yes. <laughs> yes, I'll just give you a very quick example. Please. Um, at our weddings, we have um, a custom where we offer an honor um, <clears throat> to uh, when the bridegroom arrives at the wedding, mm. he and his um, family are offered this honor of um, we have um, banana stumps. They're very thick, heavy mm. stumps from the banana plant, which are fixed into the ground. Wow. And we offer them the honor of um, chopping them down with a single blow of your war knife. Wow. Uh, the groom actually wears this war knife tucked into the back of his, uh, his uh, dress. Mm. And someone from his family is given the honor of chopping down these uh, banana stumps with one blow. And I can tell you, if you don't do it, uh, you're in total disgrace. (laughs) You have to show that you're superbly fit and, you know, you're fit to be a warrior. It's very difficult to do, though, I take it. It it takes some uh, skill. It does take some skill. You have to slice at a particular angle and you've got to have a very strong arm to do it. Wow. Wow. And I think one of the most important aspects of our culture was our relationship with the landscape. Mm. Uh, Because in the past, Korigu was um, covered with unimaginably dense forests. Mm. And it was full of wildlife and extraordinary flora. And the Korwas actually held the land as sacred. Mm. And they worshipped it. Mm. and, And their laws were formulated to protect the land and the forests. Hmm. That was the highest hmm. ideal of, yes. of the ancestors, was to protect yes. the land above anything else. Yes, and they had hmm. a, hundreds of sacred groves where you couldn't cut down trees or break branches. Hmm. Uh, you had sacred streams where you couldn't fish. I mean, they were very good hunters. They relied a lot on uh, wild game for hmm. their food, but there were certain areas you just didn't touch. Hmm. And um, <clears throat> I think um, the other interesting thing about them, if you read, um, you know, their, their uh, folk songs, and uh, they, I think because historically we were always so small in numbers, mm. um, our, our leaders found a way to find, a, they found a way to balance um, out their lives so that they had very cordial relationships with other uh, groups of people. Mm. Uh, And I say this because on the face of it, they were very warlike people, but they had a tremendous equilibrium with their neighbors. You know, they they made sure that they had good relationships with them. With Um, the non-Kodavites. 
Yes, yes. Interesting. And they included huh. the ones who lived in Korugu who were not Korwas, they included them in their celebrations, their festivals, um, uh, in their councils. Uh, Isn't know, the, that interesting? It's it's almost like in a family, sometimes it's harder to get along with your family that you know the best than it is with yeah. outsiders, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I think another uh, important part of our heritage, which uh, I think will, would interest you, is that uh, women uh, were um, highly respected mm. members, important members of society, and uh, they were protected by both law and custom. You know, and they were given a strong position by law and custom. Hmm. So this this is something which is, um, you know, very it it's come down <clears throat> through the generations. Yes. Mm. What did well? I'm gonna I'm gonna go back. I'm I'm putting this. I'm taking notes. I have some questions, some follow up questions, and I do want to follow up specifically about that. Um, but my first follow up question is: You, um, I wasn't sure coming into this conversation if it was going to be we or they, um, but you, you mostly used, you know, we speaking to the, um, speaking of the Kodavas. And I'm curious um, how that, how that happened because you didn't necessarily grow, spend your whole childhood um, in this region and around these people. Is that true? Uh, Yes. Okay. But, um, uh, uh, you see, since the early 20th century, this mm-hmm. migration has been uh, a fact of life for Korwas mm-hmm. because uh, they had to get out. The, mm-hmm. the, the whole economy changed. They could mm-hmm. no longer rely on land to sustain them. So you mm-hmm. found that people began to migrate and <clears throat> look for jobs elsewhere in other parts of the country. Right. My father was in the Indian Army. Uh, which is a preferred profession in Korugu. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we grew up in different parts of the country. We grew up all over the country and we lived in many different parts. But Korugu was home. I see. And that is where we returned for at least two months in the year and sometimes longer because, um, for instance, when my father was posted in uh, uh you know uh, what what we call non-family stations. He he couldn't take his family along. Mm-hmm. I lived in my grandparents' home, and I went to school in Madkeri, which is the capital. Mm-hmm. And uh, both sets, both my parents had very strong roots in Korugu. I see. I see. Both sets of grandparents lived there, and this is where we um, we went and we lived with extended family. Uh, when we went on holiday, it was not just us, it was our uncles and aunts and cousins and everyone converged. I uh, see. So uh, that was one part of it. And I think um, I I was also, uh, to a certain extent, apart from my own love for the place, I was influenced by my father's great love for Korugu mm-hmm. and my grandfather too. Mm. And uh, I loved everything about the place. The hills are breathtakingly beautiful. Mm. Uh, I love the seasons, even the harsh monsoons, the food, mm. the way my mother and my aunts and the women of the family dressed, mm. uh, everything, the music, the dance. And I think, uh, as I mentioned, the Korwas had this very deep spiritual and emotional connection with the land. Mm. 
Um, and I think that possibly that is what surfaced within my own personality because um, while I lived in other parts of the country, it was like uh, turning back to look at the place mm. and then seeing this tremendous beauty and those small everyday <clears throat> satisfactions mm. and wondering why you are elsewhere. <laughs> mm, really just thinking why why am I here when there's this beautiful yes. land there where I could be I think it's a tremendous sense of belonging I, wow. I really felt, and wow. I feel I belong yeah. <clears throat> okay so maybe that begins to answer um my next question and tied in with this would just be a question about I'm guess I'm curious. I'm wondering if your experience of that was um, was unique, or if other you know young people who left Kadava came back and then wanted to um, wanted to stay or or go. Or, but I guess I guess that's a that's a specific question. And my general question really is this: so you know, obviously you wrote about this culture vanishing, this people group vanishing. But the more that I read. Um, about what is what still remains, the more I was actually astonished by that. Even though it's vanishing, there still exists like this core group of people that are living, you know, without technology um, and living really separate in the way that their ancestors lived. And so my first question is, how was this able to remain intact at least until at least until today? Um, okay, let's let's start with let's just start with the numbers. Mm. Uh, historically, we've always been a very very small society, mm. and uh, at the last count, Kodawas um, are estimated to be about one hundred and fifty thousand people worldwide, and this is not a, uh, a it's not a very um, uh, how should I say it, a firm number. We, we, mm. This is an estimate. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> what is happening to the culture is that uh, basically the way of life that gave rise to it has changed drastically. Mm. It was a culture which was rooted in a specific geographic uh, location, as I mm -hmm. mentioned, and even more specifically to the ownership of land. Mm. And uh, the life that people built over the centuries is embedded in community activities. Uh, it was particularly in the past, it was hunting and rice cultivation. Uh, um, so when you, the, the first really big drastic change came during the uh, mid 19th century with the colonial period. Mm -hmm. And then later you had this urban centric world, which opened up and inevitably this old way of life changed. Right. Uh, and again, I would emphasize it was the uh, changes in the laws related to the ownership of land because um, for the colonial powers, they wanted to introduce coffee plantations. They wanted, um, you know, they wanted plantation crops so that they would make a lot of money out of it. Mm. And the felling of the forests began in the mid 19th century. Mm. And with that, change in the ownership of land. Uh, the Kodwas, as I said, uh, who held this land sacred were no longer in charge. 
they were no longer the administrators of their own land. So that was the first drastic change. Mm. And it has progressed um, faster and faster. And in the 21st century, the, the pace has just accelerated. It's The change had set in a long time ago, but the mm. pace has now uh, created an impact which is strongly visible. <clears throat> but um, to go back to what you said, why these people still hold on, it's not that they're untouched by technology or, mm. um, you know, the modern world. In fact, it's remarkable how they live in a very, uh, in a world where, you know, they're, they're exposed to everything the modern world brings mm. with it. But I think it's a choice that some people have made that mm. I have written about in my book. There are sections of people, uh, often those who are still rooted in agriculture, mm. who have, they seem to have valued their traditions and held on to them. Um, and I think it's because they have placed a very high value um, on the power of community and their heritage. And they're trying to sustain their way of life as far as they can. Mm. Uh, and I'd like to give you an example from December of uh, 2022, when I went down to um, be with a, uh, with a particular family as they celebrated the Harvest Festival. Mm. Um, it, was, it was incredible how they had managed to get people together because the minute the harvest date was announced, mm -hmm. uh, they sent out messages to all the people in the nearby towns and uh, um, places like Bangalore, where I live, or Marso, or, or even further afield. And they said, this is the this is harvest night, mm -hmm. uh, please be there. And anyone who could, uh, you know, they, they took leave from their jobs or <clears throat> whatever it uh, took them in terms of travel, they were there. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they sang the traditional songs. They danced at the local shrines. They went out into the fields. They harvested the first grains of uh, sheaves of uh, rice and they brought it back. And they really were, it was like stepping back 200 or 250 years. Mm. Um, and the next day, again, they were dancing on the village green. And it it's, uh, it's a balance that they have struck because I believe they know that if they were to lose this, they'd be losing a very big part of their identity. Right, right. So, okay. So if we go back to the... Um the 18th century when you said colonialism you know took root across india mm -hmm. did that um so first of all what were these what were these land ownership laws cuz you said they were like critical to the foundation of this culture well that, that is uh, it's a long and complex oh. uh, <laughs> answer to that but i'll i'll try and give you a short yeah. answer um land was inalienable. Mm -hmm. It could not be bought or sold in Korobu. Ah. There, there were different uh, categories of land. It was divided into, uh, say, rice fields or uh -huh. grazing grounds or forest or the highlands. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, land could be um, bequeathed. Yes, it inherited. Could be, it could be uh, gifted or leased to certain clans or families, certain depending on um, 
you know, depending on the circumstances, but you couldn't buy or sell land. I see. So really, yes, it was. It was a. Uh, it was a very. Um, it was a form of um, ownership which meant you had a hundred percent commitment to the place. And to I the see. Yes. And. Right. And things that were designated for a certain purpose, that purpose couldn't change. Like a farm couldn't become a residential area or a residential no, no. area couldn't become a commercial area. No, I, right. So, I so see. The first, yes. So as I said, the first uh, change, and I said, and as I mentioned, the sacred groves, we had um, vast tracts of sacred groves. But when the coffee plantations came in with, with the British, you found that... Um, <clears throat> You know, um, the uh, they're cutting down the forest, so uh, obviously they were not going to stop for a sacred mm -hmm. grove. Uh, so the attitude and uh, you know, and everything changed. The law changed, and with the law, people's um, awe and respect for the land, everything changed. So it's an, right. It's uh, yes. I see. I see. And then, did the Kadavas go to war? over this uh well they fought the british mm. uh, in 1834 uh, mm -hmm. and they lost after mm. putting up a very spirited fight mm. and they lost because uh, um two of their leaders actually went and brought the british in because as i said it was a very rough uh, uh, very forested terrain mm. and they were not doing very well they were suffering great losses and then mm -hmm. Two of the senior people decided, probably they realized that the British would win anyway because they had superior firepower and uh, they, they were a strong force in India by then. So so they were actually led into Markeri Fort. Wow. Uh, you know, they didn't have to fight their way in. They were led in. So they did. They, they put up a very brave fight, but that was wow. the end of uh, <laughs> the place. Wow. So there were there were um, betrayers in the midst. Yes, always. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Right. Many battles go down that that path. Yes. yes. Yeah. We have our own. You know, Benedict Arnold is. <laughs> it's like the byword <laughs> in U.S. Yeah, I see. And and now. And now, um, so ex excuse me for this question. I'm sorry. Tell me again the name of the land. How do I pronounce the name of the land? Kodagu. Cordegu. Okay. So Cordegu. Now, um, are the Kadavas back in full ownership of Cordegu? Um, or or no. is this no? Okay. No, because Cordegu uh, actually remained an independent state. It was one of the smallest independent states in, in independent India okay. uh, until 1956. Ah. When it was merged with the larger state called Karnataka, ah uh, yes, I'm in Bangalore, which is the capital of Karnataka. So now Kodagu is a district in Karnataka. It no longer has a separate identity. It's part of Karnataka. Okay, this the yeah, that actually I, I I couldn't quite tell um at first. I wasn't even quite sure at first if um Kodaku was was part of India or not, but it it definitively is part yes. of India. It's like separate but apart somehow. Yeah. I see. I see. And then um so has so technology has taken root 
in among the Kadavas as well. Um, like they're not living an agricultural based life anymore or all this. So there's like an indigenous group in um, Mongolia, for instance, um, they're a group of nomads and they still live the life that their ancestors lived, you know, years and years and years and years ago. Um, but then what's, what's happening is some, some, some of their own go out, you know, like you said, to university or whatever, and they come mm -hmm. back with technology, maybe their, their phones or something like that. But then when they, when they leave and go back to their lives, this core group still lives the life exactly the way that their ancestors did. Um, but then you have other, other, other types of um, cultures that take on modern technology, but then they sort of like, it's, it's almost more like they're reenacting the the customs or the festivals or whatever of their of their ancestors do you see what i'm saying there's kind of a difference there between like you're really living the lifestyle or you're almost living a new lifestyle but then you kind of reenact the old ones at times um i would say that technology in india is here to stay even in the mm. remote parts of the country mm. um it's it's a powerful presence and it's very much there in Kodagu. And everyone has technology in their lives, even the people who live in remote areas. Uh, <clears throat> everyone has a cell phone. And um, if you can get a decent, um, you know, um, <clears throat> uh, coverage, you would have a television and so on and so forth. But, uh, but I think it's not in amongst the Kodawas, it's not that they're reenacting mm. uh, their traditions. Mm -hmm. they, it's quite seamlessly a part of their lives. Mm. It is difficult, There's, as I said, to gather people. Earlier, everyone lived um, as one unit. Mm -hmm. Now you have to send out, as I said, messages asking people to come back mm. and, uh, you know, participate in certain um customs and traditions but mm -hmm. they're doing it willingly mm -hmm, mm -hmm, uh, the mm -hmm. ones who do come they do it because they they believe in it and they they want to do it that's why they're coming back yes i see you're saying i'm drawing a false dichotomy to say that you can't both have technology and be living um or or celebrating at least in the in the customs the old customs and that's true in terms of um the economy of the Kadavas? Is it mostly agriculturally based now? Or is it, you know, like, for instance, you said your father, he had a job um, in the Indian army. So is it an agricultural um, it's, culture it's now mixture, still? Yes, it's a mixture of, it's a mixture of um, uh, things because uh, the land no longer, as I said, they began migrating because mm. uh, they had to keep up with what was the changes taking place around them. So you find mm. that uh, many people and uh, education, of course, has come and people are very highly educated and they go out to work. But generally, you find that um, people try and keep the land that they own or they have inherited. Mm. So it's, it's a mixture of uh, two things. And a lot of Korwas who leave Kolgu to work and to mm -hmm. pursue, um, you know, careers which are very, very diverse. Um, a lot of them, when they retire, they come back home and they I settle see. on their land. Yes. <clears throat> I see. I see. 
I see. Okay. Well, I feel like the best, the best way to dig even deeper into this of, you know, what remains and what is going and how the two interact. Um, this clash, I guess, almost of modern and ancient is really to talk about, is to talk about the dish that you gave me because mm-hmm. you said that this dish is so closely tied to the land there. Um, but it also speaks to the forces of time and how that's changing um, the land and therefore the experience of the people. So first of all, can you tell just um, for the people listening, of course, I've read about it from you, but can you tell them the name um, of this dish and then just describe what it what is the main ingredients and what it tastes like? So uh, this is this is called kum curry. Kum mm. is a generic word for mushrooms, mm. uh, and you get different varieties in Kodagu. And this was always cooked with wild mushrooms, mm. uh, which popped up in uh, vast numbers as the monsoon rains began to retreat. Uh, this usually happened uh, to the towards the end of August or early September. Mm. And uh, uh, mushrooms are wild mushrooms are very highly prized in uh, in Kodugu. And this is a very um, it's a very earthy, umami laden curry. Mm. And it's flavored and it's tempered with very few spices, as you would have read in the recipe, such mm-hmm. as uh, turmeric. Mm. green chilies and uh, mustard seeds mm. um, and it also uses a tiny amount of kachampuli now mm. this is a, a very dark tart vinegar which is unique to kodugu mm. and it's a defining flavor in many of our dishes mm. so so kumakari is it's rich it's fla- uh, it's fairly thick and mm. flavorful mm. and usually we eat it with uh, Akiotis, which are unleavened rice flatbreads. Ah. Yes, it's very delicious. And you could also eat it with steamed rice if mm. you wish. It tastes just as good. Mm. Yes, so, I've been, um, mm-hmm. I, I was at a an Asian grocery store that I frequent um, the other day and the mushrooms there were so beautiful. I couldn't wait to pick them up, but I thought, okay, I really need to talk. <laughs> I really need to talk to Kavari first about this before I <laughs> before I get them because I do I do have quite a few questions about how to make the dish but before I get to that tell me about your aunt and your grandmother because this dish um reminds you of them. Well, um it 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 does. It has a very deep emotional connect mm. with both these women um in different ways my aunt actually is the one who shared this recipe with me mm. and she's tweaked it a little bit because traditionally we would put ground coconut instead of coconut milk oh and she's actually made it um uh, the the flavors are identical the texture is better in her version um, with the ground coke with the coconut milk coconut milk yes ah, um, huh. so she my aunt was an academic uh, mm. She was a professor who taught English literature at Delhi University. Wow. Uh, she was a Fulbright scholar. Wow. Um, she, she went to, I think it was UCLA to do her master's. And, and yet what really fascinated me about her was how she retained her identity as a Korwati. Mm. Uh, because mid-career, she had to uh, give up teaching due to personal reasons. Mm. 
so she returned to manage her coffee plantation. Wow. Uh, she grew coffee. Uh, she grew all kinds of fruit. She reared cows. She farmed rice and turmeric. Um, and she had the same uh, deep connection to the land and this generous hospitality and this uh, and also an instinct to nurture, which I have observed in a lot of Korothi women. Mm. They love to share good food. Uh, she was an amazing cook. Mm. And I, I really loved the way she transitioned so seamlessly from mm. one world to the other. On the one hand, she'd be writing her PhD. And then on the other, she'd be farming and cooking these enormous, unforgettable meals. Mm. Mm. Uh, you took after her. <laughs> <laughs> a bit, yes. <laughs> and uh, my grandmother and she were worlds apart, but not dissimilar in many respects. That's what I feel, because my mm. grandmother was actually educated at a convent in Korugu, which was ah. set up by missionary nuns. Mm. Um, she wrote and she spoke excellent English, but she was again completely anchored in her heritage. Mm. Uh, she lived in Markiri, which is the capital of Korugu, uh, in a very large house surrounded by a large garden, and she gardened herself. She was a very good gardener. Uh, she had a vegetable patch and plenty of open land. It, it was really not like being in a town. Mm. And there she reared chickens and pigs and cows, and she kept bee boxes because uh, Korgu is very famous for its wild honey. What? Oh, oh bee boxes. Oh, okay. Yes, bees. Yes, honeybees. Yes. Wow. And I always found it fascinating because she would extract the honeycombs herself without wow. any protective gear. Wow. Uh, and yes, and some afternoons I'd race into the kitchen and there'd be these beautiful honeycombs dripping honey. Wow. Uh, you know, did, did she just know how to not get stung or did she just deal with getting stung? You know, I'm, I'm not sure because that was what she did was quite unusual. Wow. But I think it's just another uh, reflection of just how closely they were connected to the land and everything mm. that came out of it. Mm. And uh, uh, mm. most of the produce in her kitchen came from my gra grandfather's coffee plantation. It was fresh produce. Mm. <coughs> uh, she actually had two kitchens. One was a very modern one, airy and <clears throat> light with cooking gas. Yeah, the other one was wood-fired, and blackened oh, wow. with smoke. Wow. And eyes used to sting when we went in there. Because wow. Of the and but I bet the bread that came out of that kitchen tasted amazing. Oh, it did. It oh. did. She, she used um, traditional copper and earthenware vessels wow. and grinding stones of every uh, description. Wow. And basically, she transplanted a village kitchen to town. Mm. And, um, I think mm. <clears throat> I, I really thank her for the most vivid taste memories of mm. typical Korwa food. And I think I've also inherited this passion for old vessels from her. 
<laughs> I know I've started looking at earthenware vessels like, oh, should I should I splurge for some photos? <laughs> I do have I do have one and I do I, I use them uh the, the earthenware and the copper vessels. I use them because I really was um very uh I sort of tagged along and mm -hmm. in my hung around in my grandmother's kitchen and uh <clears throat> I think it kind of um those memories stayed with me mm -hmm. uh, yeah you know, the, the do you tasted <clears throat> do you think that the earthenware that you use now um does it change the flavor for the better or is it only that the look is nostalgic uh no it, there is a difference in in mm. <clears throat> flavor uh for instance a fish curry which is cooked in an earthenware pot mm -hmm. definitely tastes different from um something mm. you might cook in a metal um you know, mm. a metal dish. Uh, less metallic or oh you were gonna say it, sorry it's just uh it's just that the flavors seem to meld together much huh. better you have uh -huh. a more complete melding of flavors i see i see and it also traditionally if you cook to fish curry you leave it in that uh, terracotta pot overnight Mm. And uh, the flavors kind of steep, and mm. it turns into something quite exceptional. Okay. Do you use your earthenware on top of a gas stove, um, or do you have to yes, use a different? You do. No, it's a, it's a compromise, but it also oh. means that you tend to lose them more frequently because the gas, mm. uh, the the heat is concentrated. Yes. Area unlike a fire uh, wood fire, yeah. which spreads it very evenly. right, kind of uh, it sort of goes up the sides and the entire right. it's uh, yeah, it envelops it. A fire would envelop it more. Yes. So these crack; they tend to crack <clears throat> uh, quicker. It it takes yeah. time because they're I very see. well made, but uh, mm. but you can actually see that sort of little black circle that forms, um, you know, directly. It's a small ring. Mm. It shows you how the heat is concentrated underneath. Mm. Mm. I see. That's fascinating. Okay, that's really interesting to me. Um, yeah, I wonder. You know, I yeah, that's that's very interesting. But neither here nor there. Um, what what I was going to say. What I would like to ask about is um, you shared just beautifully this memory of your aunt and grandmother walking in with these mushrooms so can you describe to us what you remember like kind of as a child what you saw when they came in with these mushrooms how how many were there um what did they look like what types were they where did they how did they how did they um you say you say what did you say um they set to work with a will <laughs> what a beautiful way of saying it. so describe what it took what, what they had to do preparation wise once they walked in with them well um you you've got me started because i love mushrooms oh love okay mushrooms. Uh, so the mushrooms used to come in by the basket full and these were large baskets which were used to uh, <laughs> you know the, by, by the workers on the estates uh and the workers would bring in these uh, from the coffee plantations and the forests and uh with my grandmother and my uh, and more my aunt it was when they went walking mm. uh, they would spot these and it would be collected and brought to the kitchen 
Mm-hmm. And it was a beautiful sight because the, the kitchen would be filled, filled up with this uh, very earthy, damp fragrance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also have distinct memories of going on long cross-country walks with my father mm-hmm. and suddenly coming across an expanse of, um, uh, it's what we call, uh, it, it. they're basically grassy grazing grounds, mm-hmm. gen- gently rolling land. Mm-hmm. And it would be covered with thousands of tiny, exquisitely scented mushrooms called nuchukuman, which is named after tiny grains of rice. Oh, uh, really they, tiny. They, when you say tiny, you mean tiny. They, they were not as, this was just a, a metaphorical way mm. of referring to it. They're about the size of um, um, a large button. Wow. <clears throat> um, so it, it, Looked like snowfall because wow. so many of these. Wow, uh, these would be gathered and carried home, and uh, we needed many hands to clean them because they have a lot of. It's uh, if you uh, remember, it's the tail end of the monsoon, so there's wet mud everywhere, mm. and a lot of this mud clung onto the mushrooms. Mm. Um, then there are other varieties. There's marakuma, which is a, a mushroom that actually grows on trees. Mm. And this is a slightly tricky one because uh, <clears throat> it has um, some halluc- hallucinogenic properties. Oh, uh-huh. <laughs> so you've got to be a little careful. Uh, you've got to really know your mushroom. <laughs> did, this curry, did this curry ever, <laughs> <laughs> ever introduce you to a new friend? Well, you know, I remember my husband once having a remarkable experience after <laughs> he had the most vivid dreams he'd ever had in his life. Wow. Okay. And, okay. And, uh, because he's he's very uh, he knows a lot about mushrooms. He um the next day he, he told me, he said, you know, I shouldn't have had that second helping of pickle because wow. it really did have an impact on me. Wow. Um, and then we have another one uh, called Nethilakuma, which is it can grow to the size of a dinner plate. It's wow. absolutely delicious. And uh, uh, one way of eating this one is just uh, slicing it and roasting it on hot embers and then rubbing it with salt and a pinch of chili powder and squeezing a little bit of uh, uh, lime juice over it. Mm. It's absolutely divine. Wow. So um, mushroom season was, uh, there was a lot of excitement and uh, generally you kept your uh, special mushroom patches secret because, uh, as you know, they (laughs) tend to pop up in the same places every year. Mm. So um, there were lots of conversations about whether you had mushrooms on your table or not. And uh, generally, some sort of food exchange took place. You know, neighbors would send uh, mushrooms across to each other. I see. Yes. So mushroom season was special. I see. I see. And the way that this is, um, you know, like we said at the beginning, this is emblematic of both what, um, what, Kodagu, that's it? Yes. Yeah. What it was and now what it's becoming, as you said, it's so much harder to bring in. Maybe you wouldn't need as many employees, for instance, to bring in the baskets and baskets of mushrooms now. Well, Tell me about that. Yes. In fact, it's 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 quite sad because of um, very uh, 
aggressive agricultural practices. We have so many, so much uh, pesticide uh, being used in agriculture that you've got to be lucky to get good wild mushrooms. Mm -hmm. uh, they've really diminished. And of course, the other thing is climate change, which is uh, very, very obvious. When you look at the <clears throat> produce, the wild produce uh, that's that used to come um, into your kitchens and what's coming in now, mm -hmm. there's a drastic change. There's no doubt about it. I see. I see. You say here, you say, with the loss of certain foods, an emotion that emerged from a particular season also fades and eventually disappears. Mm -hmm. Can you tell <clears throat> me more about that? Um, <clears throat> well, I think I think I'll talk about the monsoon because that's where we yes, yes. You said these mushrooms showed up in the wake of the monsoon. So yes. yeah, tell us about those. Um, so typically, the monsoon lasted from the beginning of June to the early weeks of September, mm -hmm. and it was a very challenging season. Uh, it rained so hard that we hardly saw the sun, and wow. everything was deluged, and the house was always damp and uh, mm -hmm. I remember my grandmother trying to um, she she used to have these uh, pots of uh, hot coals and there was a wicker basket which was spread uh, which was placed over this a gigantic uh, wicker basket and the clothes used to be put because the house was full of grandchildren and aunts and uh, many people so we had to actually Toast the clothes dry because it was not <laughs> wet. And wow. uh, it, it moss grew everywhere and the wind howled and uh, we were always drenched, but we loved it. Mm. And this was also a very busy time of year when <clears throat> the paddy saplings were being transplanted into the flooded rice fields. Wow. Uh, it's very hard work. It means standing ankle or knee deep in water. Wow. Uh, uh, it, and it was pouring rain all the while. Um, so uh, you had a lot of um, wow. You had a lot of um, community support because you you were obliged to share the work of your neighbors' rice fields, and they in turn would help you because mm -hmm. it's very um, labor intensive. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> It was also a very hard time and busy time for women because they had to cook for a lot of hungry people, mm. um, their family and the workers who were in the fields. And um, in the past, they relied a lot on dried and preserved foods, mm. you know, mm. beans, dried and smoked meats and preserved vegetables. Um, and despite this, we loved the monsoons. Cordovas love the monsoon mm. because it really is an emotion. Mm. And uh, this was the time <clears throat> some of our most precious foods, um, such as tender bamboo shoots or fiddlehead ferns, uh, colocasia, and um, this famous plant known simply as the medicinal plant, mm. uh, uh, which is it's quite uh, it just grows wild in in Kodagu, mm. and uh, we in our traditional belief the leaves contain. Um, curative 
and anti-inflammatory properties. And wow. this has been confirmed by a lot of scientific papers which have been published in the 20th century. Mm. So the potency of this peaks during the monsoon when the weather is at its worst. Interesting. So we, yes, it's amazing. It's, so what we do is we collect the leaves and we crush them and then boil them. Uh, and you get a bright purple extract. It's quite beautiful. Wow. Uh, so we use this to cook rice and a little bit of, uh, we sweeten it with jaggery. Oh. And we add a little bit of coconut. And mm. we eat this to fortify ourselves uh, during this very cold spell, cold and wet spell. Mm. Uh, you eat it proactively. It's not just if someone has a headache, they take it. You just eat no, it to keep no, your health just, up. I see. You no, know, it's. It's this particular time of the monsoon. You don't eat through the year. It's just I see. monsoon. I see. I, I wonder if it also, you know, there's there's this thing about seasonal affective disorder, and that's just when it's cold and kind of uh, mm-hmm. drab here. But there, you know, it's dark. It must be very dark during monsoon season. And it, it's... Yes, it, it used to be. It's because you mm. had heavy cloud cover all the yeah. time. Houses yeah. were not... Uh, no, nobody built houses with huge windows because the climate uh, was uh-huh. not meant for that. You, you, you know, you had small windows, and mm-hmm. sort of the rooms were already kind of um, quite set back. And so, when the monsoon came along, everything was that much more bleak and bleak. Cold. That's the word yeah. I'm thinking of. Yeah. So I wonder if it had almost an emotional, if it, it boosted the emotions as well. The medicinal I, plant. I wouldn't be surprised because I actually have a couple of papers which gives you the the um, uh, you know the it it boosts your immune system mm. and it's anti-inflammatory and it contains certain um, um, you know chemicals that are ideal for that those climatic conditions. It's quite mm. fascinating. Mm. Um, so so this the monsoon is. Uh, it's literally a part of our imagination because with climate change, the rains are nothing like what they were when I was growing up. Mm. Um, it's a much shorter, drier season mm. with very unpredictable rainfall patterns. Mm. But you find that every Korwa still longs for monsoon foods. Yes. Uh, yes. And, and we try everything to get them on our table, even when we live in <laughs> People will send you packages or someone will carry a a bottle of this precious extract for you. Wow. Uh, and I think it's because it's a you know, the the season is a part of who we are. Yes. Uh, yeah, know, it's part of the landscape that shaped us and the land we love. And I think it's the land that in every sense it defines who we are as a people mm. and i think the monsoon speaks this uh very clearly mm. yeah i can imagine that you know if you like i am just picturing it's so easy for me to picture in my mind you walk out and you just come upon just hill after hill after hill after hill of these you know hundreds of thousands millions of tiny mushrooms <laughs> and the emotion that must have been tied to that is almost like we made it. We made it through another monsoon season. You know, there's like a, a relief and a joy that yes. when you talk about the emotion that fades. Um, and it's like that that emotion 
is bottled up into the flavor of this curry. I think that describes it very well. That is that is what we're looking at. In mm-hmm. you know, when you look at that curry, it's got so much more than um, you know, so much more meaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, m- much of it is not even articulated, but I think people feel it and they sort of sense it in other people as well. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Are there any festivals related to the monsoon season that you could tell us about? Uh, ceremonies. No. In fact, in fact uh, <clears throat> the monsoon is a time when you have no celebrations whatsoever. Mm. It really is just everyone coming together to work through it to get yes, through you it. You have to. It's a season of very hard work. It was things, have, as I said, the weather patterns have changed now, but uh, <clears throat> but uh, monsoon was a season of work, hard I work. See. I see. Yes. As as I want to go back to um, the economy and then also particularly your family, because you said your aunt owned a coffee plantation and then um, your family had, you know, employees that would bring the mushrooms in. So how did um, how did this happen as um, did the British leave and then people took planta- um, plantations back over if it was on their land? You know, how did... Um, how did all of that happen and work together? Um, it was more more or less that because the British left uh, mm-hmm. when India <clears throat> uh, gained independence, mm-hmm. and uh, <clears throat> Korwas generally owned land. As I said, you know everything in our lives was connected to the ownership of land, mm-hmm. and uh, <clears throat> those who could bought plantations. I see, and we ran them, and then. Subsequently, people, as I said, the uh, laws governing the ownership of land changed. So then you could buy land and you could plant coffee. So there were people who did that as well. And others who bought old plantations and ran them. So this this is still a part of the economy of the district. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, Kodoku, in fact, produces some of the best coffee in the world, which reaches the market um, branded uh, it's it's not branded in India. It's many buyers from Europe and other parts of the world come and they buy directly from the farmers, and really? they they have been branding the coffee, uh, which I'm very happy to say has begun to change with the younger generation because they're young people now who've realized the that if they uh, brand and market their own coffee, uh, yeah. they get much better. Uh, uh, you know, returns for it. Right. So we have a number of young Kodwas who have gone back to their plantations with um, new methods of um, processing mm. and, um, uh, you know, selling coffee. Mm. Uh, and I'm really happy to say that they're beginning to do well for themselves because um, I think they've realized the value mm-hmm. needs to be added by them. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's right. They control their own destiny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I I want to talk a little bit about the book that you wrote. Mm-hmm. And um, so you say that you you did you did kind of two parallel things. First, um, you understood and appreciated the fact that every tradition, um, all of the Kadava traditions are 
oral traditions um, in in your own language. And so I'm actually going to quote you say, it is important to stress that ours is an oral tradition. Everything, laws, customs, ways of worship, history, songs, and stories are all passed down orally. Um, But then in parallel with that, you had to do um, your own research. Um, And so you would look at, like you said, maybe some colonial speculation as to, you know, how, how this people group had arrived there or things like that. So what did you do when you were kind of synthesizing all of this together? What did you do when you found something that was um, contradictory in the two accounts? Did you just kind of leave it as it was? Um, And did you ever feel that it was almost... um, almost almost like a betrayal, like going behind the back to look at, you know, alternative sources besides just the oral traditions um, that you wrote, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? It does. It makes absolute sense. And it was, um, um, it, it was two sides of the writing of this book. Mm. Um, there are actually, if you read the book, you will find that there are two distinct strands uh, one deals with the written recorded histories from, um, as I said, different sources and perspectives. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were frequently official or colonial records. Uh, and there what I was able to do was widen the existing base available at the time I wrote the book. Mm-hmm. By, uh, and I did this by writing to um, uh, museums and resources oh, abroad. Wow. Uh, accessing and including previously unused references from colonial journals, diaries, newspapers, and even uh, photographs, photographs, Mm. uh, uh, passing references and correspondence between officials on a completely uh, topic unrelated to Kodogu, but they would Mm. be a little reference. Wow. Uh, I, I don't know how to describe how how I felt each time I found even one line of reference. It was so precious. Um, It was so important to us as a people because they provided glimpses into this portion of our history, which was largely undocumented and Mm. unrecorded. Um, I'll give you an example. There was a particular battle that was fought um, and we have we in our folk history all that we knew was uh, the Kodwas fought very hard mm. and a lot of lives were lost. Mm. And um, I found these passing references. There was an Englishman who was uh, leading a, um, a, you know, he he had written about how he was passing through Kodgu at that time, mm. and um, he came across these corpses um mm. they were they were hung from of Kodwas hanging from trees they had been hung for rebellion and they'd wow. been hung for treason and uh, this was a time when Kodugu was fighting to protect her borders against uh, uh, the forces of Mysore which were fighting a battle for territory so wow. even a small uh, snippet like that a passing reference from an uh, Englishman's account it just gives a uh, it it fills in the picture, yeah, 
And um, so these these are the this is one strand of history, the recorded history, the documented history, mm-hmm. uh, which you will find in the first chapter, fairly extensive chapter on the history of Kurgu. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is there. The other strand is deals with the first-hand accounts of our heritage, uh, which is passed down in the oral tradition. Mm-hmm. And this is based on interviews and conversations with elders and members of Korwa society. And here, the research is related to the why of things, mm-hmm. why we follow certain customs, uh, why things are done in a particular way. And basically what I've done is I've connected the dots and put together um, uh, how should I put it? several narratives. Hmm. Uh, in fact, they confirm each other hmm. uh, about the meaning and relevance of various practices. Hmm. Um, and I try and place it in context. Hmm. Um, that is one. And the other is... The same history that is recorded in the first chapter mm-hmm. uh, is woven into the subsequent chapters from the Korwa perspective of mm. folk narrative. Mm. Uh, and to go back to what you asked, uh, if you found a contradiction, what did I do with it? Mm-hmm. I put it out there. I didn't ignore it. I said, mm. this is what the folk tradition, the folk narrative says. Mm. And this is what the historic uh, account is. So what uh, I think one of the important things is that um, what was once passed down quite seamlessly in the oral tradition Mm -hmm. has broken down some time back. It was Mm. a continuous process. And you expanded your cultural and your linguistic knowledge through this transmission. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, that has broken down a long time, decades ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel that the for the young people who have migrated to cities, for their customs and traditions to be meaningful in the future, uh, it's very important that they understand what they're doing. Hmm that the why of a practice has to be clear. And uh, that can only come from the oral tradition. Uh, and by and, and now by putting it down, because we're right. losing right. it faster than we can right. document. Right. Uh, would, but it can't would, come from a historical account, you're saying. And that's why it's important that even if there's a contradiction, the historical account, maybe, maybe not, but let's say even if it was more accurate, it's the folk account, the oral tradition, that explains this is why we did this. this is why we do it. I so, see. So for our for uh, for the older generation, they understood by living the customs and absorbing the relevance. Uh, we, on the other hand, we have to learn the meaning and relevance all over again, mm. and it's not always smooth or without gaps. Hmm. In fact, uh, several of the elders I spoke with, and I. Um, it, interviewed multiple times they they always said no one has ever asked us why before why we do things Hmm. and uh, they said it makes it made them reflect on what their elders taught them Hmm. I believe that what I've done is uh, fill in the gaps of our story Mm -hmm. Uh, the strands have been provided by the people themselves Mm. so so I think I would call it an 
affirmation and maybe a timely documentation for the future. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's not uh, it's the people's own understanding. My my role mm-hmm. has been to ask innumerable questions, mm-hmm. uh, record the answers, look for the gaps, and mm-hmm. then ask again and again. Mm-hmm. and try and put together a picture that's as complete as possible. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy to understand, even from this one conversation that centered around one dish that related to one season, it's so easy to see how these gaps come about and why why it is important to um have the folk traditions to go back to for the for the why something that might be a little bit more maybe we even want to say mystical or something like that because even now in another 20 years you know who knows what will happen with the climate but we see so much over the last 20 years how much this dish um represents change right and in, in another 20 or 50 or 100 years, someone might not understand the bleakness of the monsoon season. They might not understand the thrill of seeing hills covered with mushrooms afterwards. They might not understand um, how much the community had to come together to work, to do things. So a dish that is so full of meaning, um, and mm-hmm. it's so easy for you because we can have this conversation and record it. It's so easy for you to pass that meaning on. Um in a hundred years, if this wasn't recorded, they might they might not know that. And so that's why you could have a cookbook that would just say, you know, like a history book, a cookbook that says, here's the recipe. But unless you had um, this conversation, which I think mirrors like the the folk tales to go back to the why, the why would be completely lost. You couldn't even expect someone to know the why, because who knows what's changed since, you know, the 17th century. Um well, thank you for understanding because you have um, you put it very well. In fact, uh, I, I would like to link this to something um, of of great importance to me. Mm. Uh, since the publication of my book and my blog, which is called the Quirk Table, um, there's been a tremendous surge of interest in Korowa culture amongst the mm. young people. Uh, many of them felt. Uh, and this connects directly to what you just said. Uh, in fact, it ties in beautifully because they they felt that at last they had an accessible reference point they could relate mm. to, which uh, kind of provided them with an entry into their own heritage. Mm. Because you can feel very alienated if you've been brought up in the city and you haven't had uh, in the kind of background that I've had. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> So what happened with a number of them, because they they reached out to me on social media and uh, they wrote me emails and um, many of them came and met me, they went back to Korugu to explore their roots. Mm. Uh, And some of them found ways to stay on and others um, either established or revived links with their own clans and they began participating in cultural activities and, um, you know, exploring traditional dances, cuisine, and much more. Um, so I think they have, a. Uh, when I speak with them now, many of them have a very sharp awareness of how much is at stake. Mm. Uh, and I was thrilled to hear you say what you just did, because this ties in so beautifully with what I've actually experienced on the ground, mm. um, you know, in the, in the, um, writing of this book and uh, the kind of connections mm. that provided. 
So you just said they've realized what is at stake. It may be too difficult to verbalize, but could you verbalize what do you think is at stake if this specific um, people group, the traditions and the culture of this specific people group, the Kadavas, if that were to go away, um, what would we lose? Um Korua, Korua culture, I think like all other cultures, uh, particularly small ones, uh, <clears throat> I think I've articulated some of it in this conversation. It offers a unique way of looking at the world. Mm. Um, it has evolved over thousands of years, and yet it uh, holds, when you go deep into uh, the customs and laws, it holds some remarkably modern and um, forward-thinking concepts, uh, I think, which offer very valuable lessons to the world we live in today. Mm. Uh, for instance, um, as I emphasize, the immense respect for the environment um, of maintaining an equilibrium with other societies. Um, so these are all, and, and women, I mean, the, the way they have always given so much importance to women in in. Uh, traditional society. Um, I think that cultural diversity makes a richer, um, much more balanced world with um, multiple perspectives. Mm. And with every culture that disappears, I think human civilization and its richness is diminished in some way. And it would be a very great loss to allow this to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, if I can just end with this question, thank you for that. Thank you for everything we've discussed. Um, I we we don't have time. I wanted to talk about how you began, you know, this work, um, and we didn't get to talk about that. But I think it's fair to say you can correct me if I'm wrong, but that this um, expanded from you know an idea to a book you wanted to write to really your life's work. Um, and if that's accurate, then what what is next? Um, it doesn't seem like you're done with this study or you're done being a champion um, <laughs> of the Kadama people. So <laughs> if this is your life's work, what's the next phase? Uh, it is indeed my life's work. Um, and it's an ongoing process. I will continue to work on this as long as I can. And I don't think it can ever really be complete in the strictest sense. Mm -hmm. I think my greatest satisfaction has been in the very real impact this book has had on a significant number of people. Mm. Uh, the elders have related to it as being recognizably their own story in their own words. Mm. Uh, and the young people have found their heritage. Mm. Uh, so I, it means a lot to me. Um, I, I want to add that uh, the Korwa language is on UNESCO's list of definitely endangered languages of the world mm. uh, based on its uh, <clears throat> diminished number of speakers. Um, so last January, I published uh, a place apart. It's called A Place Apart. It's a bilingual mm. collection of poems from yes. Mm -hmm. um, I translated them into English and I collaborated with a poet who's now, uh, he mm -hmm. turned 90 in January. Yes. And um, 
this book is um, in a way i mean this is this was my uh, next step mm-hmm. uh, where i have tried to use uh, a transliteration in roman script Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I spent some time looking at it actually it was it was over my head <laughs> but it was amazing it's, a, uh, it's to provide the diaspora the Korwa diaspora an opportunity to le- read their own language because we since ours was an oral tradition we've mm-hmm. never had a script we, mm-hmm. we've used a borrowed script since about the uh, 17th century mm. um, borrowed from Hindi the, uh, no, from Kannada, which is the language of Karnataka, the state ah, that we live in now. I see. This has been a, a, a very, very, um, uh, uh, it was a, a an ambitious project. <laughs> and it turned out into something special. And, um, and finally, I have a long delayed uh, dream, which uh, I, I think I've finished about 80% of the work, and I hope it will see the light of day this year. It's my book on Korwa cuisine. Oh, yeah. oh, oh, please let me know when that comes out. We'll have to definitely oh, do an yeah. updated follow-up interview when that comes out to, um, to, to, to um support that work that's amazing is your i have to ask you is your aunt alive to see this um sadly no no she, she's not okay uh, three years ago so. oh i'm sorry i yes. think i just imagine how but she did see your first work the vanishing cadavers oh she she was uh she saw that and she um she just loved it she uh, loved the work and, yes uh, yeah <laughs> Go ahead. You were going to say something. Well, she uh, had some very perceptive remarks to make uh, mm-hmm. about the book, and I'm I'm very grateful she was there when uh, the book came out. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just can't help but think how much you're following in her footsteps. Um, you know, as an academic who also loves the land and is, um, like you said, she moved seamlessly between the two, and I think it's I think it's wonderful. I've enjoyed our conversation so much. I really do hope we get to talk again. I mean, really, I'd love to do like a, a twenty or thirty minute follow up when your cookbook comes out, so we can um, talk about that and and support that. I, I would been- love to. I would love to do that, and I have enjoyed our conversation enormously and thank you for having invited me to be here and most of all for your excellent questions because you <laughs> made me reflect and think afresh about many topics mm. which are very close to me thank mm. you it has been my honor i really can't wait to share this with listeners and i'm going to just say right now while you're on the line for anyone who has follow up questions um for kavari i'd love to collect those from you and we can maybe have a conversation in the newsletter or in a follow up conversation i'd be very um, happy to do that I'd yes be very happy to do that yes oh. Yeah, wonderful. I just thank you so much for your time and what you've shared. And I can't I can't wait to support you in the future. Please stay in touch, okay? <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> okay, you take care and have a wonderful day. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks again so much to Kavari. Um, I wanted to remind you, of course, that her mushroom curry recipe is right there in the show notes, as well as lots of ways to reach out and find her. Um, 
three things I'd like to ask of you. First of all, would you please subscribe to the podcast? It's a little harder to keep up with monthly episodes than um, than uh, weekly. And so it would be great if you knew when the next one's coming up and if you could play that in your favorite podcast player. So go ahead and subscribe right there um, in the show notes. Also, would you rate and review the podcast in your player? That would help me quite a bit as I continue to grow. Uh, You can do that. Again, there's a link, a real handy link in the show notes. If you're not sure how to rate or review, just look for that and um, I have a little app that makes that super easy for you. And finally, I would love for you to subscribe to the Storied Recipe newsletter. That's a lot more interactive this year. It's how I'm working on and developing most of my upcoming episodes and other content um, by receiving feedback from the community that I can turn around and share with the community again. So I'd love for you to subscribe to that. Uh, As always, link right there in the show notes. Thank you again for being here and I hope you have a great week, my friends.